Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. So today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Stacey Stewart. Stacey is the president and CEO of March of Dimes and is currently serving as its fifth president. She heads the organization leading the fight for the health of all moms and babies and is responsible for all aspects of the organization's strategy, vision, and operations. Stacey came to March of Dimes from United Way Worldwide, where she held several positions, most recently serving as U.S. President of United Way the nation's largest nonprofit organization. There, she provided strategic direction for more than 1,000 local United Ways. She was also responsible for United Ways national efforts in education, financial stability, and health, as well as guiding efforts to enhance the brand and grow revenue. She spearheaded the transformation of United Way from a pass-through fundraiser to a leading organization for local community impact. Prior to becoming the United Way U.S. President, she served as Executive Vice President, Community Impact Leadership and Learning. In this role, Stacy developed global partnerships to advance community impact in more than 40 countries. As a business veteran, Stacy has also held a number of senior roles, including Chief Diversity Officer and Senior Vice President for the Office of Community and Charitable Giving at Fannie Mae, as well as President and CEO for the Fannie Mae Foundation. Additionally, Stacy has an extensive background in finance and investment banking, having served as VP for Prior McClendon Counts and Company and as a senior associate for Merrill Lynch, which we will get into. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Stacy Stewart. Hi, Stacy. Hey, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. For sure. Thank you so much. All right, before we dive into your 20s, I do like to start every show with a bit of a fun and light question. So my question for you is, what is a new thing that you learned in this past week? It could be maybe something interesting in a book you read, maybe you had a cool conversation, maybe an article, or it could even be as simple as like you learned how to bake something new or you saw a new part of your town, but something new that you learned in the past week. Well, quite a few things. And I, it's interesting, yesterday I was listening to, I guess he's like a meditation guru or something. It just kind of popped up on my social media and he was making this point around uh, to how never to forget the really negative experiences you've had in your life because you always want to remember what that feeling felt like when you something really negative or kind of what you think is bad really happened in your life so that you never repeat it again or you never repeat that same mistake. And, you know, I've heard a lot of people always talk about, you know, you learn from your mistakes and all that kind of stuff. But I think it was a new way of looking at it, which is, You know, he was obviously saying to be thankful for those even not so great experiences. And a lot of people like to try to push those things out of your mind. You don't ever want to remember it. You want to forget about it. You don't want anybody to raise it. And he's saying, no, 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 be mindful of it and remember those things so that you don't ever, ever have to recreate that feeling of what it felt like when things didn't go well. And I just thought it was, um, I don't know if it was a new thing, but it certainly was a reminder of something that is a really important thing to keep in mind. So I love that. It's easier said than done. I find myself wanting to forget the harder things. Did he share a practice that you can do to help 
kind of bring back those moments or, or preserve them? Or he just said that it was very important to do that. Yeah, he just kind of said it. And I think he was sort of, you know, in, in the way of just trying to be mindful and grateful for all the things in your life. You know, I've lived with a lot of great experiences and some not so great experiences. And I found myself being one of those people, sometimes when those things pop up in your head, you're like, oh my God, I don't want to think about it. And he was just helpful in kind of reframing it that you can sort of always remind yourself to look at it as a blessing, but also something that you should not recreate if you can at all avoid it, which I, you know, I think it's just a part of being kind of mindful about life and experiences, which is, you're right, easier said than done, but always a good reminder, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. You t- you kind of reframed it too as like gratitude. And I think that that's something like looking at past experiences and seeing the silver lining is so, so important. And like studies show that, you know, like you're 25% happier if you're more grateful and all these things. And that doesn't always mean like being cheery and positive. It means sometimes like looking back at the hard stuff, looking at it from a brighter perspective, reframing it a little bit, or even just remembering it and reminding yourself that like you made it through something tough. So that's refreshing. Thank you for sharing that. It's funny with the things that stick with us. I feel like I'm, I'm like that on TikTok a little bit. Like I, I think I'm sometimes on that like education feed and it's these little random tidbits that help you see things differently. So that's very cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Okay, so we'll dive in. We're going to chat all about your 20s. Obviously, you've had an incredible lengthy career past your 20s, but this show was really all about bringing on incredible women like yourself that Right now, you've had such a long and incredible career. It's hard for someone in their 20s to look at someone like you and be like, how do I get there? Because quite frankly, like there are ups and downs and there are entry level jobs and there are mistakes and, you know, failures like we just talked about. And so the goal of the show is to really humanize that experience, learn all about you and, and those that amazing decade. And then, of course, some of the stuff you've done since. So before we get into the 20s, I'd like to just ask about your childhood and, and what you wanted to be when you were younger. I know you grew up in Atlanta. And so would you mind telling me a little bit more about your childhood and, and maybe what you wanted to be when you grew up? So I have very fond memories of, of my childhood, and which wasn't necessarily, I think probably for my parents, was still a pretty stressful time to be raising children. So if you think about it, I was born in 1964. It was a, sort of the height of the civil rights movement. It was the same year that the Civil Rights Act was passed and then the Voting Rights Act was passed and it was in Atlanta, you know, very tumultuous time, right? I mean, Dr. King would have died a few years after I was born. So it was, you know, I think about my parents all the time, like what it must have been like to raise kids in that time. But I was born right in the middle of that. And, you know, I I guess I was really blessed to be born in a family that understood how to shield me at some level from a lot of the the scary things in the world, right? And what it would mean to be a, a little black girl in that world, right? And growing up. And I happen to live in a, in a community, a neighborhood that really is, it's interesting, it's on the historic National Registry for Historic Places, a black neighborhood. And it was unique at the time because it was a black neighborhood of black professional people who built their own homes, bought their own land, black contractors, black builders, homes bought by black physicians. My dad was a physician, dentists, lawyers, judges, a whole range of very upperly mobile black people. And it was one of the rare neighborhoods of its time where black people created that space 
they kind of finagle the system so that the white people in Atlanta didn't even know the black people were buying the land <laughs> and built their own little cocoon of a neighborhood. And that's where I was raised. And so I got raised in this environment where I felt I could do anything. I didn't, I never had the impression or the understanding that I wasn't able to be whatever I wanted to be. And of course, I was surrounded by all these great people. Sometime when I became you know, a teenager and I was working summer jobs like everybody else and a lot of people working at Six Flags, the amusement park. I was I worked at a store called the County Seat. This was one summer. I think I was 16. And it was a, I don't know, it's kind of a weird store, I guess, maybe for a young black girl. It had like so Levi's and like Western clothes and stuff. It was um Sounds a little random. Western clothes. Yeah, but I never, I liked the retail setting, but what I liked about it was that it was like a business environment. It was like, and I always wanted to like work the cashier. Like I didn't really want to clean up the clothes and organize the clothes. I wasn't really interested in retail or fashion or design, you know, any of that stuff. I just really wanted to handle the money. That was really all I wanted to do. And that was my first sense that, you know, something in business was what interested me. Of course, when I was a little girl, I was, um, I had this fascination with being a cashier. I really did. Like grocery store cashiers. This is all very strange, but there is a through line, right? Which says, you know. Oh, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. (laughs) Something about being a cashier meant meant I was going to be a business person down the road. So yeah, it was fun. It's so funny you say that too, because when I hear retail store jobs, I think people like sales and that's also associated with business, but in a different way. Like you're talking about like the cashier, the finance, the more money side of business, which is really interesting. So yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, did you end up having a lot more jobs like that? And then I know you obviously, you know, went off to school to study economics and business. So did you have that awareness at that age or did that come later too? Yeah, I think I did. I think I just kind of then took one step in front of the other. So like the following summer, I ended up being like an intern at a bank. It was then First Atlanta, First National Bank of Atlanta that was bought by Wachovia, that was bought by Wells Fargo. So and I spent a couple summers then working for First Atlanta. And and that's when I really felt I was going to gravitate to something in banking. And I, I just loved the environment. I loved what it all represented. You know, what was really interesting is because my father was a physician, my mom was a pharmacist, nobody in my family really understood business, none of that. So it was very different. My sister's a lawyer. She's a judge now. It was very different from what the rest of my family was doing. But I had a sense that if I just kept plucking away at it, I'd figure out like ultimately where it would lead. And of course, then I went to college and, and I did decide to major in economics and then go to business school and get an MBA in finance. So it all sort of made sense. And I spent a few summers working in banks, both the ones in Atlanta. And then I got a really great internship at Chase Manhattan Bank in New York back then. And that was really what sort of really solidified my interest in banking. So it was just a matter of building on an interest and taking one step at a time and just seeing where that led me and, and not being afraid to sort of try something that even was unfamiliar to my own family. Yeah. And I love that every internship and job you got, got closer and closer. The retail store, you could have been gravitated, like you said, to the organizing or to the window or whatever the thing was, but you liked the money. So then you decided, okay, I'll do banking and then I'll move my way up and I'll go to New York. And, you know, like every little step got closer and closer. And I will say too, I we have that in common. I come from a family of, of physicians. And so I'm the only business one too. And I think that's really special that you knew at that age, because often when I'm chatting with people 
They're like, I kind of thought I was going to do what my parents did. They don't have that strong sense of self, this like almost awareness, like, I like this. I know I like this and I'm going to pursue it and take action on it rather than just think about it. Because I find a lot of people, even in college, they're like, I'll do my major that my parents did. So what do you think contributed to that like strong sense of self when you were pre-college? You were like, this is different than my family and I'm going to take action and pursue it, which I think is pretty rare. Yeah. You know, I really don't know. I think I was just kind of really in touch with from a very early age, like what really made me happy, you know, and what I thought I really enjoyed. And I have to tell you this, though, I can remember, talk about this fascination with money or finance, all this stuff. I can remember when I was very little, my father, I had a hard time understanding change, making change from a dollar. I think all kids must not understand change because nobody deals with real money anyway. So I think kids today would definitely understand this, like little kids. But um, the difference between sort of a case quarter and two dimes and a nickel, just, I mean, when I was like, I don't know, four or five years old, this just completely eluded me. Like I didn't understand, like, how is that possible that one thing could be as valuable as three, you know? And so my family laughs about that to say, how did you struggle with that when you were so young? But now look at what you've been doing later. End up working on Wall Street and you couldn't figure out what a quarter was relative to two dimes and a nickel. So, you know, it's just funny how these things kind of work out. And I think maybe that sort of that fascination with money just kind of like never left me. And I just always wanted to kind of figure it out. I love that. It's either you didn't know, you couldn't understand it, or you had a unique curiosity for a four-year-old. Why does she love coins so much? <laughs> right. That's so funny. So, okay, so... You have these retail jobs, you work at banks, and you're, you go to college and you study business. I know you went to Georgetown. So maybe we can just touch on that briefly. How did you like your time at Georgetown? I know you shared you, were, you got a lot of awesome internships during the summers, but can you tell me a little bit more about your time there and how you liked it? That's a good question. Well, uh, let me just say this. So when I was my senior year in college, and my senior year in high school, let me just start there, was a little bit traumatic because my sister had had a really, really bad car accident. She just graduated from Stanford University and had a bad car accident, spinal cord injury. And the very first days of my, and literally the very first days of school, my senior year, she had the accident. My mother left and was pretty much gone my entire senior year with my sister in rehab in California. And they didn't come back to Atlanta until I don't know, it's like April or May or something, about around April of the of my senior year. So I went through that whole college application process. My dad was there, obviously, but he was working, was very busy. And these weren't kind of the, some of the things I even talked to my dad about, like a school and all that stuff. So I pretty much made guesses about where I would go to college and what schools I would pick. And we had college counseling, but yeah, I don't know. But so it was very random how I ended up going to college, where I applied, why I picked it. So I, I hadn't really visited any colleges because there was no time to do that. So I ended up applying to Georgetown. It was so like, doesn't make sense. I just figured, well, it's in Washington. I have a lot of family in Washington. I had a lot of family in Washington at the time, still do. So I thought, well, it's in Washington. It's away from Atlanta. It's a really good school. I'll just go there. Literally, that was <laughs> that was my thought process. And showed up at the school, went to school by myself, you know, moved myself in. My roommate's mom helped me. But it was like a very traumatic sort of period in that transition. And I ended up going there, loved D.C., loved being 
in this city where I still live now. And um, even though I went away and then came back, just being, you know, near the capital, being able to be able to access so many different opportunities in D.C., the campus itself, the school itself, you know, not so much. It was pretty conservative, pretty conservative Catholic. And I sort of didn't feel like I sort of fit in there. But I stayed focused on taking advantage of opportunities, worked at all kinds of different places. I worked at every single place you can imagine in Washington while I was in school, just supporting myself and making money and things like that. And from that standpoint, it was a great experience. I mean, I got exposed to a lot of different things. And then, you know, because my family was so unfamiliar with business and business school, I knew after graduating from Georgetown, I would want to go to business school. My dad was of the belief as a physician, what do you do? When you go to medical school, you go from college and you go to medical school. Well, he didn't understand going to business school. I mean, in fact, he was sort of like, why do you even need to do that? I mean, people just open their businesses and they just do that. Like, I don't understand the whole idea of going to school for business. Who does that? And I said, well, you know, you do do that. And like, like there's Harvard Business School and things like that. There's like really good schools in this. And he said, well, that's fine if you want to go, but you can't take any time off because he didn't believe that. So I was, you know, long story short, it's hard to get in business school then. And I think now when you don't have work experience and it was definitely hard then. And I thought, okay, I'll apply. I was pretty dutiful daughter. I was like, okay, I'll apply. I probably won't get in anywhere and I'll have to end up working anyway. Well, lo and behold, I applied and got into everywhere. Like, after Georgetown, which was crazy. Congratulations. Really crazy, right? And I ended up being a full fellowship to go to Michigan. And uh, and that's how I ended up in Michigan. Michigan, University of Michigan at the time and still today was that experience was the best school experience I ever had. Just the campus. And I think the campus has changed and in many ways. And it don't feel like it's as welcoming as it once was for kids of color. But at the time it was it was an amazing experience and I, I'm grateful for my time there and uh, learned a lot, grew as a leader. I was president of the Black Business Students Association, which was the largest student association on the campus of University of Michigan at the time because it included both graduate students and undergrad. And I can tell you that was the most amazing experience. In college, I didn't do any leadership stuff. I was pretty much just one of those like average kids. That's one of the things I want people to know. Like I, in high school and college, I was not one of these superstar AP a straight A student. I was a good student. You know, I worked hard, but I think what I persevered in my life and what I went through in my life is what really honed my ability to be kind of who I am today. It wasn't like I was just always some superstar and this this is just normal for me. I, I like wasn't. I was pretty pretty average kid <laughs> for the most part. So but learned a lot along the way. If average is Georgetown and MBA right out of school, then I don't know about the rest of us. But I really appreciate you sharing that about your sister as well. And I think it, it really puts into context too, just this like independence that you had, that you were able to navigate that whole process, make the best decision for you at the time with the information you had and make the most of the opportunity, right? Like, yeah, maybe it was a little religious or maybe it wasn't exactly the business education, but you made the most of it and you had that independence. And huge props that you got went to MBA school right after college. That's awesome. Can you tell me a little bit more about what made that, you know, Michigan experience so special? I mean, I imagine being the president, you know, of the Black Student Association, like, or the Black Business Student Association must have been an amazing place for you to show your leadership skills, to meet like-minded people, to have community. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you loved that experience so much? And and maybe, you know, your advice for any 20-somethings that are thinking about getting an MBA, because I think that's a lot of the thought process, right, is 
job, grad school, right out of college, way later. Like, and maybe some advice you have on that as well. I definitely think there were some pros and cons to going to business school right out, out of college. I mean, I do think there is value of having an opportunity to work. Obviously, I think business schools really appreciate people that have work experience before they go to business school. So I'm not suggesting that my path on that was necessarily the best thing. Although I will tell you, getting graduate school out of the way and never having to really think about school again is amazing. <laughs> you know, so, so there's pros and cons of the whole thing. But I also think that, so going to Michigan was just, you know, a range of like really amazing experiences that helped me grow in a pretty short period of time because I was only there for two years. I think the growth that I experienced in that two years was really pretty profound. I mean, first of all, most of the people I was in school with were older than me because again, they had been working and I had not. So I was able to like, I think mature in a way and at a level that was faster than, you know, what I probably would have done otherwise. I also think that when I was president of Black Business Students Association, the leadership that I developed was pretty important, right? Because actually, and it had, this has nothing to do with business, but what happened on the campus at the time is there was a lot of upheaval around some diversity issues and race issues and things like that. Well, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, if there's anybody who knows about race relations and how to deal with these things, like it's somebody raised in Atlanta. And, uh, there was a man who, you know, had gone to University of Michigan, who was a big business leader in Atlanta, black man, very close to Andy Young. And I reached out to this Michigan alum who was friends with Andy Young to say, do you think Andy would come to Michigan and speak to students and try to create some calm on the campus? I mean, there were sit-ins at the administration building, things like that. And um, it was through my invitation that Andy came and like the whole campus showed up, the whole campus showed up to hear. Andy Young and give his perspective. And so it was like, I went to the president's house to, you know, you do that whole thing. And, and it was like, boy, I had it all of a sudden, I become like this kind of rock star. And it was just because of connections and relationships and people I knew, but just a sort, of, sort of a perspective that I brought and realizing that there's always something special about each one of us. Like there was something I, special that I could bring to that situation. And I didn't shy away from letting it shine, you know, and I, I think that really built tremendous confidence and tremendous self-esteem for me, this young black girl from Atlanta. Right. And I think I leveraged that in, in really important ways, because what happened then was I really I decided I wanted to go to work on Wall Street, take that banking experience and really apply it to investment banking. And there were really no investment banks coming all the way to the University of Michigan to recruit. They were all, why, why would they do that? There was, there's Wharton, there's Harvard, there's all these East Coast schools. Why would they come halfway across the country to recruit for banking jobs? But I ended up getting an interview with Merrill Lynch for a sales and trading job. So nobody remembers this, but junk bonds were the thing when I, in the 80s. I learned about those I in my history class. <laughs> Terrible, terrible things. Okay. And um, this guy who was selling, it was a junk bond salesman, came on campus. They were looking for people in sales and trading, but not in real banking jobs. And so I got number one slot for the Merrill Lynch sales and trading junk bond sales person interview. And I was not going to take it because there are other people that wanted the, that slot. But I thought, this is my only shot to talk to Merrill Lynch. So I took it and got in the interview and boldly said, they started giving me this junk bond salesperson interview. And I boldly said, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. I really love Merrill Lynch, but I really want to do another job. And they said, okay, what do you want to do? I said, well, I really want to do this job called public finance, which was all about 
financings for state and local governments. That was the real area I was really interested in. And they said, okay, I will give you a public finance interview. And they did. I ended up, long story short, uh, making my way to work for Merrill Lynch, which had the number one public finance group on Wall Street at the time. Unbelievable. You make stuff happen. Yeah, I had just make it happen, right? But you follow, it's following your heart. And, you know, that little bit of something about my self-esteem and confidence, like I was like, you know, drive a truck through it. I can't stand when you have to like, somebody has to say, oh, you're so great. You did that so well. And then someone has to constantly remind you of that. Like the minute you hear that, just believe it. <laughs> you know? Why don't you just believe it that it's true and act on it? You know what I'm saying? So it was, I think that's a theme that is, I've seen uh, myself repeat in my life is uh, not waiting for multiple validations because who has time for that? You better take the one you get and run with it. Yeah, wait for a door to open and just smash it and then go it, you know. Absolutely. I love too this like boldness you have with asking for what you want. Obviously the job example you just gave, I actually don't want to do a job in this thing. I want to do it in this other thing. So cool. Bring someone to campus that was so well-known, could really make change, asking them, you know, just, it's like this boldness. And like you, you talked about, it's confidence too, that I think, you know, you go after what you want. And I think that's really inspiring. And it sounds like too, I think it takes finding that thing. Like, you know, you were obviously president of an organization you really cared about. You figured out public finance was like something you thought you'd be good at. I think it also takes like discovering that thing to have that boldness and that confidence because if you're not doing the thing that you love, like if you were doing junk bonds, you'd be like, meh, I don't feel that like excitement and that passion and that boldness. So it's really cool to hear you talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I just, it, it makes me think about the fact that, you know, I had a lot of friends who were graduating from college and then after college, it's like, well, what are you going to do after college? And then so many people were saying, oh, I'm going to go to law school. And I was just like, oh my God. If I hear one more person say, oh, I'm going to go to law school. I'm like, why? Do you really want to go to law school? Like, why are you going to law school? I don't understand that. Now, if you want to go to law school, you want to be a lawyer, great. But how many people just, have you ever heard like, I'm going to go to law school? It's like the default thing to do. And I'm sort of like, oh my God, like, I can't think of a more painful thing to just be doing something because it's like someone expected you to do it or you thought it was right or it looked good on your resume. I mean, who cares? Who has time for that? If you just love to do something, you should just figure out what you love to do. Like my thing about public finance and investment banking and like every other job that I've had since then, there's there's a real theme. And here's the thing. So I love business, but the way I grew up again, because of that 60s growing up thing, it was my parents were very, very clear that and just how they lived. They never actually said this, but they were very clear about your life has to mean more than just what you create for yourself and your family. Like whatever you're doing in your life, you better be make sure that it's giving to something greater, right? To your community, to others and all that. And when I heard about this thing around public finance, it was the perfect thing to say, wow, I could work on Wall Street and still do good, like work on Wall Street and do financings that build roads and bridges and schools and hospitals and all the create jobs and all these things. And I was like, that's it. Like I didn't need to hear anything else. There wasn't another job in there. There wasn't another thing I wanted to do. Like that was it. And because it so spoke to kind of who I thought I was, right? And literally every other job that I've had has followed that theme of working in a big organization with tremendous resources in finance, leading, as well as doing good. And if I ever had to do something that wasn't about that, I think I would just shrivel up 
is not fulfilling kind of what I think my purpose is. Everything you're saying like speaks right here. I, like I said, I also grew up with physician parents and I studied social entrepreneurship. So everything that I do is identical. Like I think business for good and like, how can we use business principles to create good in the world? And that's a lot of what you're doing. And I think we'll get to this later, but it's so refreshing to see you at the forefront of a nonprofit, which I think as a larger whole is an industry that could really benefit from a business mind like yours. And so I know we'll get there, but it's it's really cool to hear you talk about this and, and very inspiring for, for my path just specifically. And there's lots of listeners that are not me, but it's very cool to hear. So you get your MBA and then, like you said, it's time for investment banking and it's time for public finance. Would you like to tell us how that junk bond interview turned out? This is a, such a cool story. So I had the junk bond salesperson say, okay, great, we'll give you a public finance interview. That turned into flying New York for subsequent interviews. By the time I had gone through that process, though, they had already extended a bunch of offers. They had like, I don't know, six slots in the public finance group and they had already extended offers. Okay. Between my first and second year, you know, you always do an internship for an MBA. And I actually did it in an area unrelated to public finance. I did it back in Atlanta for Citicorp in something called the leveraged buyout group. So junk bonds, leveraged buyouts, this was all the hot thing in finance at the time. And I thought it was interesting. I thought it was fun. They liked they liked me. I wanted to come, you know, they gave me an offer to come back at the end of the summer. And so I had a job. Like I, you know, going to my second year, I had a job that wasn't really a fit for me, but it was a job, right? Like I could go and do that job. But then I heard about public finance and that's when I started my whole process of and then the whole Merrill Lynch thing happened and all that. Okay. So now fast forward in my end of my second year. I had this offer from this city court leverage bio group and I've been interviewing for Merrill Lynch and they're telling me we don't have an offer for you yet, but if one of these folks doesn't accept their offer, you got the next offer. So I'm graduating in May, it's April and city Corp says, Stacy, it's April, whatever the date was by that date, you have to tell us whether or not you're going to take this offer or not. And I waited until that very date in April. It was like mid April to tell them whether or not I was going to take the offer. I hadn't had the Merrill Lynch offer. I had this thing. And so I had to make a decision. Do I give up this thing that's sure and wait for the thing that's not sure? Or what do I do? And I decided to tell Citicorp, sorry, I'm not going to take the offer. So I'm graduating in beginning of May and this mid-April and I have no job. Then I went to school the next day, classes, whatever came back. And this is when you had voicemails, <laughs> like a voicemail box thing. You had to come home first. Push the button. Yes. And blinking light, push the button. And it was the folks. And this is the very next day after I turned down CityCorp, the very next day, it was a voicemail that said, oh, Stacy, we're so excited. We want to extend an offer to you to be in the public finance group in Merrill Lynch. Seriously? Like I threw everything down. I ran in the street. I was just like, I ran out of the house. My apartment at the time just ran around. I was screaming. I was like so happy. And it was like, when you talk about leap of faith, like that was leap of faith. But it also was like, I'm 22 years old. What do I have to lose? I mean, if I didn't have a job, I'd just go back home and live with my parents or something. I don't know. I mean, but I was, it was going to be like, but I was also like, I'm not going to just settle for something when I know my heart is set on something that I really want. And the time you have to work out, it doesn't always work that way. There have been other experiences in my life where I've like 
been holding out for that one thing and it didn't happen. And I just kept waiting and kept waiting, waiting. You know, it's just, it's just amazing. But I'm so glad that I took that leap of faith, you know, because it set me on the path for the rest of my life and certainly my career in investment banking. I worked in public finance for five years and enjoyed it tremendously and learned so much. Unbelievable. Good for you. And I'm so glad it worked out. And obviously you've had such a fruitful career since. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about what that job ended up being? I mean, I know you had this hunch that it would be great. It was obviously doing business for good and working in a big organization, like you said, but doing a lot of great work. Was it everything you dreamed of and more? How was the job? It was great. It was great. I mean, I worked in New York and Maryland for three years. I then eventually did move back and worked for a smaller firm in Atlanta. I wanted to be back home in Atlanta. So for five years, I worked and I did all kinds of deals. I worked on housing deals. I worked on economic development, bond deals in Indiana with around car auto assembly plants built, you know, creating jobs. I worked on hospital deals in different states. So I did a lot of different things. Really, really amazing. But here's the flip side of that story. So here I am, I'm doing so well in my career in my 20s, right? And what happened during my 20s was I was so focused on my career, so focused on building and growing professionally. I completely lost sight of like me inside, like who Stacy is, that more emotional, spiritual thing. I was not paying attention to that, wasn't cultivating that at all. And eventually by the end of my 20s, it really caught up with me. And I just really almost like kind of emotionally crashed and burned in some respects because I didn't take the time to really realize that during that period of my 20s, which in so many ways was remarkable from a career point of view, it was really, really a dark time for me personally and emotionally. And it took me by the time I was 30 years old to sort of really get my act together and really focus on the whole Stacy, right? Like professional, emotional, spiritual, all of those things. So it wasn't all just like, oh, la-di-da, my career is going great. It's wonderful. It was like a lot of some heartache and some tough some tough times. And my family helped me get through it and, and some friends as well. But I learned a lot about myself in, in terms of who, who I was as a person and what I would need for the long haul, right? Because the path I was on was not something that I was going to be able to sustain, you know, and, and be a healthy whole person. So it's a lot of learned, learned a lot of really, you know, hard lessons, but really good and very important lessons that I don't think if I, if I had not learned those things, I certainly absolutely would not be able to do what I'm doing today. Thank you for sharing all that. I mean, I think that really resonates. Like if you are so career driven and you are so excited, I think the tendency is you do neglect those other parts of yourself. And to hear that it did catch up to you and you had to address it and you had to figure it out is really powerful. What brought you back? Was there a moment where you just had burned yourself out? Were you working crazy hours? What was that thing? Because I think everyone experiences it differently. But I think when you are so ambitious, the stereotype of banking, you know, of course, like people can work so, so, so hard. So yeah, what, what was it that kind of like brought you back and made you realize that you had neglected those parts? I wouldn't say it was like an emotional break or whatever, but it was definitely like kind of a moment of like a real mental, emotional sort of just dark period. And my, and, you know, in talking to my family and my friends, I reached out for help. There was therapy, there was all kinds of things available to help me. And, and I really use that time to sort of think about me and 
okay, how do I prioritize the things about me? And, and I really do think it's sort of interesting to really try to figure out like what drives that kind of ambition and that drive to do well. And I definitely think that, you know, because of how I was raised, there were some pretty high standards set for me. And I think I was always in this like sort of rat race to feel like I could maintain that high standard of performance, probably to make my family proud or whatever, but just to make sure that I showed up as what they wanted me to be. I think there was a big part of that. I think also going back to that accident with my sister, I sort of felt like the, the situation with my sister was one that if at all possible, I should not have my life add more of a burden to my family, right? Because they were already dealing with enough things with my sister. So I was in this panic mode to try to make sure I got to make sure that I'm successful, that I can thrive, I can support myself, that I'm, you know, independent, that, that I'm not a burden to anybody because they have enough on their plate. And so there were all those things going on that were just kind of driving me into overdrive. And then finally, just kind of like, you know, crash and burn, trying to keep up with all that. And there was a part of me that was always like, okay, I do want to succeed. And that's just part of who I am. But I also don't need to do that to fulfill somebody else's expectation, right? Like, I I should just do it in the way that I want to do it and satisfy myself, not necessarily do it because it's going to check the box for someone else, even my own family, you know? So it was just, that course correction was really important. There was no way I could have done it by myself, though. The support, both professional support and family support was really important for me to get there. Yeah, a good reset for sure. And it sounds like a lot of these things had been subconscious for a while, you know, and whether it was the pressures from family, because just because of the expectations, not that they did anything and your sister and just this drive that you always had, it sounds like it, you know, it was kind of always there underlying and it took time for it to really come to the surface. And I'm, I'm so glad that you know, it all worked out and you were able to get the support that you needed. That's really important. I have a question for you. I know we're jumping ahead a little bit, but maybe now as someone who has such a beautiful life, right? Partner, kids, fruitful career, like, are there things that you do to connect with yourself or that emotional side or spiritual side that you are non-negotiables for you? You know, I know some people that a gratitude journal is just like absolutely everything. Some people that love Pilates, some people that just therapy, that's just their thing. Like, is there something that you feel like is that practice maybe that you've continued that really helps you connect and makes you don't lose that again? So definitely, you know, when I was in high school, I ran track. I wasn't a big athlete. I would have loved to have been, but that wasn't like my family didn't believe in girls on play sports. That was, you know, so they just work hard in school. So I just, so I didn't really pursue sports. I did run track, but I, you know, I was just sort of, you know, that's what I did. But then when my daughters are born. I was, I am one that believes that sports are really important for girls. And so I got them really involved. And now they're older and they both were, have been athletes through high school, uh, didn't want to play sports in college, but I've continued that passion and just started a, a foundation called Sports Mom Foundation to support more girls that, especially those that let, whose families lack resources to help them get college recruit ready. So we've started that, my family and I have started that and we're spending a lot of time on that. That's a real passion of mine. And I got into that through sports photography. In many ways, I've had this quiet, creative spirit that I didn't even really know I had. I mean, you can see behind me, I got some art behind me in my house. I collect a lot of art. 
I took an art history class when I was in Georgetown and got an A. It was a class you had to wake up Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m. and go into a dark room for an hour. And I got an A in this class. And it was because, you know, despite all this finance, banking stuff, art has been another big interest of mine. And so that art, going to sports photography, going to this foundation, like there's been these, you know, there's these little things come up in your life and you're like, oh, I like that. I like that. And this is what I'm saying. Like, like, listen to those little voices of the little things you like, even if people laugh at it or don't understand it or whatever. Who cares? Right? Like, if it's something that makes you happy, that's all that matters. If you want to go out and do rock climbing and that makes you happy. It's also, let me say one thing that's really important for me is that I work so hard. I'm, just, I'm really intense. My team knows like they, I drive them crazy because I'm super intense. So for me to relax, it needs to be something as all encompassing, like it needs to completely consume me in order for me to get my mind off of the other things. And that's a form of relaxation for me. Like my relaxation is really more mental re- relaxation than sipping something on a beach. Like I, if I have to sit on a beach for more than two days, I'm like, so like, this is awful. Like I can't do that. Like I need to be like, over in the beach. Oh, somebody's parasailing. Let's go do that. Like, or let's, let's go take a hike or do whatever. You know, that's, I'm more into the, I need to be doing things that help me help offset the inner, the mental energy that I expend in my daily life. And that's really what, what brings me, you know, happiness and joy. It's what I've been able to, you know, when I need to be centered, I, I just get my mind on, I throw my energy into something else I love. And that kind of brings me back. And getting away, especially during the pandemic, getting out of my house, getting, uh, going on a walk is really important. But those little things are really, and um, exercising today is still really important to me and, and running. I love to run. I don't, I don't run like I used to, but I'd still try to get on the treadmill a little bit. <laughs> and that helps as well. <laughs> I love that. It's finding these hobbies that speak to you and like using them to kind of escape, whether it's art or rock climbing or my personal tap dancing, very random. But you know, we all have those things that like, they are our mental escape, like you said, and it's absolutely very powerful. Yeah, I used to be a news junkie too. And um, like want to consume all the news. And now I find that that is not a healthy thing. I consume as much news as I need to know roughly what's happening in the world. And then I kind of get, and then I can move on to the things that I, because there's so much negative energy that gets reported out every day that I, I think if you spend too much time on it, it's just, it's going to ruin your spirit at some point. So that's another, that's another tip. That's a great tip. I think we've learned a lot, especially during the pandemic. I think we've all learned how to manage that for sure. And picking those things that are going to make you feel relaxed, not stressed. Like you, like news watching, like, yeah, that's maybe a hobby, but like, that's not going to add to your positive outlook. It's not going to decrease your mental load. You know, you're talking about how much you love sports. I just have to ask, are you watching the Olympics? Are you a big Olympics person? I haven't really gotten to the, into Olympics yet. I'm sort of a little bit into it, a little bit not. Um, but I'm definitely a March Madness fan. Yep, coming up. I'm definitely a college basketball fan. I'm definitely a girls sports fan. To the extent I am watching the Olympics, I'm looking at the women. <laughs> You know, know, I'm looking at (laughs) like the women's hockey team, love them. You know, I do like that. I don't know. It's something weird about this Olympics. It's not, it just seems like it's happening. I don't know. It's just not, 
I love the Olympics normally, but for some reason, I'm just not that into this one. I don't know what that is. Yeah, no one's really talking about it. I know. It's sort of strange, right? It's like it's it's happening, but it's not like super exciting. I love all the U.S. athletes. You know, this is one where, you know, China and Sweden and some other folks are, you know, there's some other countries that are going to make us uh, not not shine quite as much as we typically do, I think. So, well, I want to respect your time. I know we're kind of coming up. This has been so valuable on a personal note. Like, I just love hearing your story and about your journey in your 20s and like how you've obviously gone and had this incredible career in banking, you know, and then now as a nonprofit leader and building very business minded, uh, very marketing heavy, forward thinking nonprofits, which has been pretty incredible, incredible to watch. So before I ask you my last question, I did just want to give you the opportunity to chat a little bit about March of Dimes, the work you're doing now. It's so, so, so important. I know you guys have your March for Babies campaign and you guys are doing lots of cool stuff. So before we wrap up and ask you the last question, I did just want to jump way ahead into the present and have you just chat a little bit about March for Dimes. Thanks for asking about it because we do have a bunch of great things happening. This is always a really exciting time of year because we're about to go into our March for Babies season, which, you know, a lot of people are used to doing a walk for a charity or run for a charity. Well, the original walk for a charity was started by the March of Dimes. It was used to be called Walk America. It's March for Babies and it happens all around the country. And it's just a really great way. A lot of companies have employee teams that come out families come out and it's really an opportunity for us to really connect in with an issue that really is um, is really a, a crisis in this country around maternal and infant health. The fact that we have far too many women who die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth, far too many babies who die and the health equity issues that exist where black women are three to four times more likely to die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth, black babies twice as likely to die as others. You know, in this country, we are considered the most dangerous developed nation in the world in which to give birth. And, you know, we're not trying to scare young people, especially young women who might be thinking about becoming pregnant soon, about what that journey is. Because, look, let's face it, the vast majority of pregnancies do go very well. But we should have a world in which every mom and every baby is safe and healthy, right? And unfortunately, we have far too many instances where that does not go well especially for women of color. So March for Babies is really an opportunity to raise money, to hang out with your friends, groups, fraternities and sororities come out, like all kinds of folks come out to be a part of March for Babies. And that's coming up. And you can just go to marchforbabies.org and sort of plug in your zip code and you can find where there's an event next near you, wherever you live. But the other thing we're doing is called March for Change, which is really much more on the advocacy side. So a lot of our health outcomes in our health system, the decisions around how we make sure that there are resources available for people to access good health are not just made in Washington where I live. They're actually made right in your state capital. And and states have a huge role to play in how people access resources for health. And so to the extent that we want to influence that state level policy change, we've been doing this thing called March for Change. And we've got some days where people can come out, advocate, go to your state capitol, talk with state legislators. There are a lot of bills, a lot of issues that are really important, like extending Medicaid postpartum by one year instead of women getting dropped from Medicaid, you know, two months after the baby is born and they still have to go back to the doctor, but they have no way to pay for it. We need to make sure that new moms, like their babies, have access to good care because a lot of women 
have extenuating circumstances and chronic health conditions, they, they continue to need care. There are a lot of different bills and a lot of sort of advocacy opportunities that March for Change creates, and there's there's plenty of opportunity for that as well. So there's just a lot of great things we're working on. We we what we want what we're trying to really do is to make sure build awareness around healthy moms and strong babies, address the equity issues that this country is still facing, unfortunately, and really get people engaged in ways that they really love. I mean, some people love to get involved with the fundraising side of things. That's great. Some people love to be an advocate. They love to lift their voice. They like to make sure their congressperson or their state legislator, you know, understands how important these issues are. And so we try to create as, as many ways as possible for people to get involved. And there's plenty of opportunity to do that. Marchofdimes.org is a place where you'll find all this information. And then if you are interested in marchforbabies.org, March for Babies, go to marchforbabies.org and there's more information about our events there too. That's perfect. What you guys are doing, I am blown away. And like the way that you've also like increased the presence of this organization too in the in the past few years since you've been a part of it. I mean, I saw Allison Felix is now involved and all this just amazing stuff you guys have. Uh, I'm a Trojan, so he's a very special and I love the Olympics. Oh, good. Yes, great. Just to bring it all all together. So she has a very special place in my heart. But she's amazing. The work you guys are doing is is really incredible. And, you know, a lot of the statistics you share are shocking and upsetting and you know, like you said, you're not trying to cause alarm, but these are real things that are happening that we need to be aware about. And there are things we can do locally. And I think it's cool too, that, you know, you obviously with United Way, they do such a great job locally. And so you're able to come in at March of Dimes and really make sure that people can create local change, which I think we underestimate what we can do in our own communities. And it's really cool that you guys are are sharing that we can do that. So thank you so much. Well, I'm going to dive into our last question. We obviously, a lot of our listeners are 20 somethings and a lot of them are mostly women. And so we like to ask every guest, if you have one piece of advice that you could give to every 20 something, what is that one piece of advice you would give them? Well, and now as you've heard my story, you, you understand the sort of epiphanies, the epiphany or the epiphanies maybe that I, that I encountered in my twenties that were really important. I think the special thing about being 20 something years old is that you're only 20 something year old years old once <laughs> or for that period of time. Right. And when you're in your thirties, forties, fifties, your life change for most people, your life changes pretty dramatically. Uh, most people start getting married. They start having kids. You're raising kids. Your kids are getting older. Your kids never leave your life. So you're always with your kids until you're like 60s and 70s. And then all those things that you really want to experience when you didn't have all those responsibilities and stuff, you're older and you don't, you don't, you really can't enjoy them in the same way that you would have if you had done some of those things in your 20s. So what I would say is that really make sure that your 20s are spent. And I'm not saying this to suggest that people should be selfish because that's just not how we should live. But I am saying that your 20s should be spent prioritizing who you are and building out the totality of who you are, right? Sure, you're going to be spending time developing your career, understanding your career, where it's going to go, worrying about your career. But don't let that consume you. Like really try to make sure that you're building out the person that you are in total. What are your interests? What do you love? Who are the people you want to be around? What gives you good energy? What gives you not good energy? And try to put together an identity of who you are in ways that 
give you self-esteem and confidence and help you just be prepared for the challenges that will come in life because life is going to be full of so many challenges that you're going to need a strong foundation to withstand those things and to confront those things. And when you experience those negative things, like I said earlier, you'll experience them, but you'll look at them with a bit of gratitude, knowing that, oh, okay, I learned from that. I'm not devastated by it. I'm not destroyed by it. I'm just learning through that process. You know, it takes a bit of internal and intestinal fortitude to to make it through those things. Well, spend the 20s building what that looks like for you, for you, not based on what other people are defining for you, but what you need to build for yourself so that that foundation is created so that your 30s, 40s, you know, where there's going to be so much more burden and responsibilities of life that are all really nice things like family and all those things, but, you know, are are big things that you got to deal with, but you've got a great foundation because your 20s was built really focusing on developing that. And that would be the advice I would, I would give to anybody in this stage of your life take full advantage of it and have the most fun you can. I love that. I love this idea of building your foundation. Like it's almost like a house metaphor, you know, like you really, you need to have a strong foundation to be able to withstand what's going to come on top of you. And to think of it almost as like you're, I'm thinking like you're prepping, like you're cooking, you're baking and let yourself get fully baked, you know, in your twenties, don't rush that process. And, and I like this comment you made too, about how make sure it's what you really want. Cause I think a lot of your twenties are about kind of shedding the like, familial, societal, whatever pressures and expectations and like sort of an awakening of like, what do you really want? And figuring that out and defining that because ultimately you're the one that gets to. So I, I think that point you made too is really powerful. Well, Stacy, this has been so fun. Thank you for, for chatting with me and for chatting with our listeners. This has been such an honor and I wish you nothing but the best with, with March of Dimes. You guys are doing awesome work. I'm a big cheerleader from afar. So yeah, thank you again. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. All right. Well, if you guys enjoyed this conversation, please give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram and subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks, everyone.